2: Thank you, Scott. Hi, everybody. I'm Kelly Evans. And here's what's ahead with stocks sliding more. Dow's down 533. We'll have more on that in just a moment. The market is still not getting the message, according to one of our guests today. The Fed will have to stay tough on inflation no matter how much recession risks are growing. And we'll talk to her about that. Is she right? We will debate it plus a major option expiration day. We could see big moves on the close and doesn't set us up for a little near-term rally. We'll dive into that. And it's out with Fang, in with Bang. Four names in healthcare, one analyst says, are working way better than the tech trade. He joins us to make his case. But first, to Christina Parts and Evelis, She's got the numbers on
3: this continued sell-off, Christina. Yeah, I didn't want to come here with some bad news on a Friday, but it wouldn't be 2022 without a bout of volatility into the year end. The S&P 500 right now is below its 50-day moving average. That level was uh, 38.61. So that's a key threshold for tech traders. and We can see uh, that it has dropped lower. We saw the same thing happen to the NASDAQ as well as the Russell 2000 yesterday. So what has triggered this sell-off? Kelly mentioned a few things. Uh, we got the ECB and the Bank of England. both joining the 50 BIPs Club, uh, hiking their target rates and showing the fight to get inflation down is still very much in play over there. And some even questioning over here if that 2% target should even be the target given how high wages have stayed and how high services have stayed. So we bring it back to today, though. What is moving on the markets? All sectors are negative today. You can see a sea of red with energy, the only sector in the green on the week and also the only sector higher on the year. And that was up about 50 percent uh, year to date. And I'll leave you with one particular market mover. That would be Meta, the biggest winner on the Nasdaq 100 and poised actually for a weekly gain after an upgrade from J.P. Morgan. They like the cost cuts. You can see shares are up three percent. Kelly.
2: Christina, thank you very much, Christina Partzinevelis. Now, markets have been reeling since the Fed's hawkish meeting on Wednesday. But my next guest says they're still not getting the message. The Fed will have to be a lot more hawkish for possibly years to come because of big changes in the labor market. Joining us now is Diane Swank. She's the chief economist at KPMG. Also with us is CNBC senior economics correspondent Steve Leisman. And Steve, before we dive into this, you do have some fresh headlines from Mary Daly. Is yeah, that they right? go
1: right along with this conversation. Once again, hawkish comment from one of the most dovish members or previously one of the most dovish members of the FOMC. San Francisco's President Mary Daly saying, 11 months is reasonable for how long the Fed may have to be on hold, and it may need to hold rates at a peak rate longer than it usually does. Everyone at the Fed, she says, expects to hold rates all of 2023. And she does not understand why markets are so optimistic about inflation, something we've been talking quite a bit about, this gap between markets and the Fed. Daly saying we're far away from a price stability goal. She has a higher peak held longer than some bond investors have predicted. I'll keep it there, uh, Kelly. But this is part of an ongoing issue of the Fed being in a different place from the bond market, having a different outlook for inflation than the bond market, having a different outlook for interest rates than the bond market. And I think the key question here is what the Fed may have to do to get the bond market's attention. And there's only one answer that my reporting has come up with. Which is? Um, You know that old phrase, uh, the the beatings will continue till morale improves? Mm -hmm. Keep hiking. OK, that's the, that's the only answer.
2: That's the perfect place to bring in Diane Swank, because, Diane, you also look at the market's reaction to data when, you know, when it's pushing the Fed towards dovishness and think there's no way you think the Fed's going to have to be even more, like, way more hawkish than what's priced in now. Why?
4: Well, I think what we're seeing is, first of all, the Fed is really worried that we're going to hit a floor on inflation that's too high, that becomes something more corrosive, longer bout of inflation. That's long been their concern. They're concerned about it in the service sector, that services excluding shelter are going to be a floor on inflation. And that's something that the financial markets, the more that they ease up on weak economic data and good news on headline inflation and some of the other inflation parts, aspects of inflation, the more the Fed has to raise short-term interest rates. And I think Steve's exactly right on this. This is something they clearly also made a decision at that board at that meeting um, in December that they would come out with a unified view. The decision was made before the meeting to see how unified the Fed is in 2023 on rate hikes with seven participants above that high end on the rate hikes of 5.12% at the end of 2023. Also, we had two participants actually pencil in a recession. And let's face it, a Fed that's forecasting a stalling out of the economy at basically zero in 2023 with a 1% rise in the unemployment rate already raises the issue of just how hard a landing is this going to be.
2: Right. In other words, it's extremely difficult to pull off that kind of maneuver without risking a much bigger downturn. And Steve, are the, is that a risk they're willing to take here? It sounds like your reporting and what Diana is saying is is the answer to that is yes, they would rather risk a larger downturn to keep inflation from kind of being persistently high.
1: You know, Kelly, you're a reporter, and 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 there are times to talk about the things you're reporting on, and times to be quiet. This is probably a time to be quiet. But I want to tell you where my head is at because I've got the brilliant Diane Swank here. Are
2: we to infer from that that you might have some, uh, no, some no, insight on your mind? You some, something on share. my mind
1: I want to throw out. The Fed may have to keep the growth rate permanently lower. If you follow, Yikes. If you follow Jay Powell's thinking, which is what I've been doing, and I've been thinking a lot about yep. it, the thing that was so hawkish to me and downbeat about his speech at Brookings was he sees no help coming from the labor market. Now, you all at home can play the how to, how to measure growth game. It's productivity plus labor force growth. If productivity stays the same and labor force growth is permanently lower, that's a permanently lower potential to the US economy. And if I didn't ask him the question yesterday about whether or not he's concerned about financial tensions, which I thought was the most important question, absolutely. Yeah. the next thing I was gonna ask him was, hey Jay, Are you thinking that the U.S. economy' economic potential is permanently lower? What does that mean? It means he has to stamp on the neck of this economy for a very long time to get it below potential of the prior potential, and get labor, get demand for the economy in line with labor supply, which is permanently lower.
4: What would you add to that, Diane? Well, I think you know, Steve and I have actually talked a lot and we've talked about this issue and I think it's exactly right. I think what we see now is a Fed that looks at the labor market as a secular supply shortage problem, a secular labor shortage, which frankly businesses agree with them. And I think that's very important to understand. Even in the Brookings speech, the one thing you never hear Jay Powell talk about immigration, legal legal immigration, the need to grow the labor force That's not out there right now. And he's laid out a scenario in which not only does he have to raise the unemployment rate now, but the Fed, when it settles into the post pandemic world, there's many within the Fed that are worried about, are worried about, exactly, worried about having a higher unemployment rate, needing to have a higher unemployment rate as the non inflationary rate of unemployment. They thought they could get to three and a half percent. He admitted that. They thought that was their goal and that they could do that without inflation. That's no longer the case. This is a new world. And I think that's a very different kind of economy than the one in which we left. And it's a very different mindset for financial markets to sort of let sink in. And if they don't let it sink in sooner, the Fed has to go further
2: is there a weird silver lining here not weird i mean it'd be a great silver lining if it meant you know you should turn around right now and, and press for more wage gains you know this is what we were talking about with some of the blue collar lower income fields especially there's a lot of pricing power right now just look at the rail dispute that the president had to step where congress had to step in and resolve look at what we're hearing the analysts say right. about marriott and some of the, you know so w- what you're telling is actually a message pretty optimistic in some ways for about for some the workers labor I-,
1: I talked to a cfo the other day who said what he's going to do is look at his company and say these are the people I need. I'm going to give them all big raises. The people who I, I marginally need, I'm going to let them go. Hmm. That's how that may work. There's going to be some margin compression in that story. Um, I just look at the way Powell is looking at the labor market, and I think he has it right. Congress is not opening the doors to legal immigration. The illegal immigration doesn't right. really count in, in this regard in terms of, that, in terms of the labor force growth. Um, he said retirees are... Um, uh, are, ex- are still at an accelerated pace of retirement. And Kelly, if you don't mind, this may be personal, but as far as I know, women cannot give birth to 25-year-old re- working people, working-age people. Right. You have some personal experience with <laughs> you gotta that. You've got to go through 25 it takes years. It some time first. to get there. <laughs> Diane has a personal experience with that. you so, yeah. so if somebody can tell me where the labor is going to come from for the current demand level, other than that, I have to think about a potential uh, run rate for this economy that's somewhere below 1.8. And I also have to think... That if Powell yeah. wants to create slack in the economy, he's got to keep this economy below 1.8 for some period of time until demand and supply of labor are in alignment. And, and so,
2: Diane, if you you know when investors are talking to you, they're saying, okay, well, so what is this all? So, do stocks have to permanently reset to lower valuations? Right. I mean, what are talk us through the the takeaways here if you're right?
4: Well, I think there's a couple of things. First of all, if we were to have, and I don't think a recession is a good thing, but I think the Fed is already planning on a recession. I mean, let's, you know, not split hairs here. I mean, when they're talking about a 1% increase in the unemployment rate, which I think it's going to go higher than that anyways, um, and stalling out the economy, that's a hard landing for a lot of firms. And the idea that the Fed is pushing so in in unison, again, there was a little shine of light between people within the Fed. Now they're all on the same page again, because they're really worried about that underlying inflation and getting to a floor that we can't go below. And that's important. And it means that you know, we could have a shorter period of time. I have a recession that brings inflation down a little faster than the Fed does, but not a lot faster. Mm. As the Fed cutting by the end of the year, and the good news is a Fed-induced recession is easier to recover from, but we're not talking about, if at all possible, the Fed does not want to go back to zero rates. And the kind of world Steve and I are talking about is a more inflation-prone world with higher interest rates and a very different kind of environment for different winners and losers, what I worry about is the triumph of incumbents.
1: Diane, real quickly, it's a lower, it's a higher, it's a higher sure. inflation world, while growth is above the new potential. Once it gets down to that potential, it's right. actually a lower interest rate world, mm. because a lower interest rate would go along with you have a lower it right. demand for money relative to the growth of the economy.
2: Well, now you've but just you changed this all on its head, Steve. No, now you I got, don't know which got, way to you go. But you
1: have to get there first. All
2: right. And we know it could be some getting there you have
4: to, and, and getting from here to there is no easy. No Absolutely. Easy task if it's all, right, you know, it, it know, be that's wrong. that's the Maybe message. The Fed, they could they could be wrong. We could be wrong. I'd love to be. You know, right. Steve, I've been hoping for your soft landing scenario, even though I don't have it. That said, I think you have to understand where the Fed's coming from now. And if you don't understand that, you're also going to be on the wrong side of the Fed.
2: Yeah, and kudos, Steve, for flagging this issue on the right immigration now. and the labor force all year long. Thank you. You guys have been doing some yeah. great work. Thanks. All right, we'll leave it there for now. Diane, have a great weekend. Uh, we'll check back in soon. Diane Swank and our own Steve Leisman, but also be sure to catch former Fed Vice Chair Richard Clarida on closing bell today at 3 p.m. Eastern, where they are sure to pick up this thread. Now, in the meantime, we're seeing heavy trading volume today. We have a massive options expiry looming with nearly $4 trillion in options set to expire today. It comes after three months in which the market has actually been trading in a pretty tight range. Will this slog continue or do we see signs post-expiration of a breakout? Let's ask Chris Murphy. He's co-head of derivative strategy at Susquehanna. It's good to see you again, Chris. And I've heard some musing that we could see a rally after today's big expiry. Why?
5: Well, you know, I think the argument there would be, like you said, today's kind of the last real big liquidity day of the year. So if you are looking to lighten up your positions into year end because of everything from what's going on with the Fed and the ECB to the economic numbers, uh, this week and today is probably the day to do it. Um, When vacations start, when the markets are thinner, that can obviously work both ways. um, But uh, that will be the argument for a much thinner, really late kind of Santa Claus rally into year end.
2: And then what? Where do you see kind of the next leg of the stock market move heading?
5: well you know we're always going to be tracking the options trading uh... it does appear to be uh... pretty close to consensus through that trading that uh... you know we're going to hit the uh, potentially uh... final low for this whole process in yeah. the first it's quarter bearish, or, or, right yeah a lot, a lot of hedging a lot of put spreads a lot of put buying things like that we're seeing a lot of that you know sometimes when that's the consensus um, you know, maybe you want to you know, at least think twice about it if everyone's on the same side of the boat. But that's definitely what we're seeing in the options.
2: And you were thinking that that points us some towards sometime in the first quarter of next year?
5: Yes. And, you know, there's also kind of a sentiment that everybody is expecting it and everybody wants to kind of buy that dip, whether you look at a lot of pro- prognosticators talking about 3,300 or 3,000 or whatever. If everyone's on that same side and we have been re- seeing reports of positionings really pared down, you know, are we really going to get all the way down to that level? You know, the VIX doesn't seem, you know, super concerned right now. So maybe we never actually get there because everyone's hoping to buy that level.
2: What else will you be watching here um, in the next couple of weeks? You know, what are the kind of classic tells as to whether the market is forming a bottoming process or or needs one kind of final flush?
5: Yes, well, every sell-off is obviously different. And, you know, we've been waiting for that VIX spike all year long. Uh, this has been much more of a grind of a slog of a, of a you know, repricing of risk. You know, if we do finally see that real uh, spike in the VIX capitulation signal, then, of course, we're going to feel more comfortable about it. You know, this sell-off might just be different, though, but we're certainly on the lookout for that.
2: And finally, we all know the math and the history of with recessions. It could mean we still have quite some time left in this kind of down market, right? I don't know if you have any comment on that.
5: Well, you know, once again, just looking at the options trading and seeing, you know, we're not seeing that VIX volatility spike and everything seems to be pointing toward a long, drawn out, you know, we got to, you know, kind of payback for the the froth of the last couple of years. So, yeah, we know looking at the options, looking at the VIX, things like that, you know, could certainly point to, you know, a flat grinding lower kind of 2023, which no one's really going to be too excited about.
2: No, for sure. Uh, For now, Chris, thanks. We appreciate it. Chris Murphy from Susquehanna. Coming up, healthcare is on track to snap its longest quarterly losing streak since 2009, but the sector is still only 5% off its 52-week highs. A top healthcare strategist with his best performers joins us next. Plus, stocks are headed for their first negative December since 2018. So how do you invest in a market like this one? We're debating growth versus value, stocks versus bonds, all of that with two chief investment officers ahead. As we go to break, a look at the Dow, down 547 at the lows, just 50 points off that level for the moment, with pretty consistent 1.5% declines across the board today. In fact, the S&P is the worst performer, down 1.6%. We're back after this.
1: This
6: is The Exchange on CNBC.
7: From their innovative practice facility to unmatched views from the fairway...
2: Welcome back to The Exchange. It's been a tough week for investors with the market sell-off picking up steam. Tech and healthcare all seeing declines, but in a challenging year, tech has been pretty hammered, while healthcare has held up relatively well in comparison. In fact, my next guest argues that bang is the new fang in terms of performance. Here to explain is Jared Holtz. He's healthcare equity strategist at Oppenheimer. Jared, welcome. These, you know, BMY, Amgen, these are not sexy names, but uh, but you put them all together and you're seeing some pretty strong performance, aren't we?
9: Yeah, for sure, Kelly. I mean, I think the premise here is that healthcare is somewhat offensive, somewhat defensive. It gives investors a little bit of everything. Valuations across the space are somewhat reasonable. I think it all leads to this sector continuing to perform at least relatively well versus the market. And yes, tech has been... Um, in many cases, obliterated with some of the you know biggest household names down uh, dramatically on the year, and healthcare has performed. Very well against it. Yeah, um, tough to say when tech is going to come back, but I think this continues for a bit.
2: I was just going to say that in some ways, healthcare names are becoming more household given the way the cold and flu season is trending right now. But let's run through the performance. The XLV healthcare ETF down only three percent year to date versus down twenty six percent for tech. For BMY, that's your B, up nineteen percent year to date. Amgen up eighteen percent. Neurocrine Biosciences, tell us why that's uh, going to stay in here, up thirty six percent. And Gilead. Up 20%. That's incredible outperformance.
9: Yeah, I mean, that was just a, a cross-section um, that gave me a good acronym. Um, yeah. it could be <laughs> I really love the anything. Honesty.
2: In,
9: yeah. <laughs> yeah, it could be anything in large cap healthcare that kind of gave investors a little bit of a state haven. Um, you know, those four have all had, you know, very mixed years in terms of fundamental news or or progression as far as their drugs are concerned. But I think when you look across the entire landscape, whether it's BMY, whether it's Amgen, even throw Johnson & Johnson in there and Merck. Um, you know, these are large cap dividend paying stocks, I think, in a, in a market that's obviously very tricky. Um, it gives the street something to kind of gravitate towards. And yeah, I think when you look at, um, you know, whether it's Bang or some additional large cap healthcare names, fundamental performance is pretty good. And earnings look like they're going to kind of hold in, at least relative to other subsectors. So, I think that's why we feel like healthcare is going to be a, at least a pretty good sector over the next couple of quarters.
2: All right, so let's kind of just go back on that point for a moment. Why has healthcare outperformed by so much this year? And why is it likely to outperform again next year, do you think?
9: Well, I think healthcare has performed well because it, it is really dominated by large cap pharma. Um, managed care, drug distributors. There, there are really three, maybe four large areas within this sector that comprise the vast majority of the XLV or how we would define healthcare. So it's come from a very small number of companies. These are um, you know, low valuation or much more uh, value than growth. They're, the rotational effect in the market has benefited them greatly. Um, many of these were not really beneficiaries of, pan- of the pandemic, meaning they didn't Crush numbers and dominate the way that other subsectors in healthcare and other industry groups did. So I think there's a benefit there. Sure. And I think as far as existential risk, you know, you and I have talked about in the past, uh, drug pricing and Medicare for all. Those are those two major risk factors that have kind of surrounded healthcare. In my opinion, have been um, significantly reduced this year. The drug right. pricing with the Inflation Reduction Act. And then this has been, you know, a very liberal political front we've had here. And they've really walked away from universal health care or Medicare for all. Yeah. I think that has helped pharma companies and it's helped managed care companies, both of which have been great performers.
2: Great points. So quick final question. You're even going so far as to maybe recommend the XBI, the, the biotech ETF that's had a really tough time as the Fed's gone into reverse here. Why wouldn't uh, the bad liquidity environment still be a headwind for biotech names next year?
9: Well, I think it is. I, I feel like we're coming into the year at a, at a better entry point. Um, two really horrible years for biotech, obviously. Yeah. XBI right around eighty, so it's bounced off at of the lows. It seems like it's stopped at least uh, going down consistently. Whether it gets a, a real bid is questionable, but you also have you know an M and A backdrop, which I think is pretty helpful. And data sets around the industry, at least from larger cap players, have been very good. So it's more of a conceptual idea. I'm not sure this is like a rip roaring space next year, but at least into January at a better level.
2: I like we say a better entry point. (laughs) That's what this reset has definitely given us. It's true. Uh, Jared, thanks so much for your time today. Appreciate it. Thanks, Kelly. Jared Holtz. Speaking of healthcare, Centene is out with its guidance for next year, seeing higher earnings but lower revenue. The shares are down a third of a percent, even as they authorize a $2 billion increase to their stock buyback program. Centene's CEO will join us in an exclusive TV interview, her first since taking over in March. That's coming up next hour, 2 p.m. Eastern, on Power Lunch. Still ahead, fears about a recession aren't stopping one retailer from making a big brick-and-mortar bet on inflation-weary shoppers in suburbia. You won't want to miss this story. And remember all the hype about Bob Iger's return? The stock's down 3% since then, and Disney's big bet on its new Avatar movie is front and center this weekend. We'll look at what's at stake and whether the box office can give Disney a boost. As we head to break, take a look at the Dow heat map. Ladies and gentlemen, not a single name is in the green today. That's even worse than yesterday when Verizon was trying to outperform. Uh, With the Dow down 522, we have names like Amex, Nike, and Salesforce among the worst performers. The Exchange is back after this. Welcome back, everybody. We're just off session lows. The Dow's down 520 points, so add another 1.5% to the deep uh, sell-off we've already seen this week. And here's a check on the mega cap names. All one pace for a losing week and firmly in the red for December. Uh, For instance, Microsoft down another 2% today. Over the past six months, Apple, in fact, is the only one of the major guys hanging on to a 3% gain. Meanwhile, Adobe is leading the S&P and the Nasdaq, up 3% after an earnings beat last night, maintaining its forecast for the year. The shares are up about 3.5%. But the stock is still down 40% since January. Even Adobe is having its worst year since 2008. And Tesla is back in the red after being one of the few stocks to close higher yesterday. Tesla is down 15% since Monday. It's close to its worst week since the depths of the pandemic in March of 2020. It's down 4% to 151 today. Let's get over to Steve Kovac now for a CNBC News update.
8: Steve. Hey there, Kelly. Here's what's happening at this hour. In an Instagram post, Brittany Griner says she's happy to be home and plans to play basketball next year for her team, the WNBA's Phoenix Mercury. Griner also says she knows President Biden is committed to freeing Paul Whelan and other Americans held overseas and offered to help in any way she can. A judge said the Club Q shooting suspect needed mental health treatment and was stockpiling weapons more than a year before the deadly attack. The judge made the comments while dismissing charges that Anderson Aldrich had kidnapped his grandparents. Those comments had been under a court seal that was lifted last week. And the Energy Department is starting to refill the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. The agency says it will buy 3 million barrels of crude oil. It's the first purchase since this year's record 180 million barrel release from the stockpile. Crude prices rose after the announcement, but remain lower for the day. Kelly, send it back over to you. All right, Steve, thank you very much. Yeah.
2: Still ahead, despite this week's stock slide, one of my next guests says there's still a chance for a Santa Claus rally. How he's positioning next. Welcome back to the exchange. Stocks are sliding again, with the Dow, the Nasdaq, the S&P all on track for a second straight week of losses. In fact, the S&P is now down 19% for the year. But my next guests aren't deterred. So where are they putting money to work? Joining me here on set is Kevin Mon. He's the chief investment officer at Henyon and Walsh. Welcome, Kevin. Thank you. Great Kelly. to have you here. Andy Kappner is here. here as well. He is co-chief investment officer at Regent Atlantic. Andy, it's great to have you here as well. And Andy, I'll start with you. Where, you know, what do you tell clients right now? And and how do you figure out? kind of where to go for 2023.
11: Sure. So after a year like 2022, it's hard to be optimistic because bonds are down, stocks are down. It doesn't feel like there's been any place to hide, except that's the setup that sets you up for a better 2023. What happened this year is uh, we let some air out of a bubble. Um, Stock valuations went from very high to quite reasonable. Bond valuations went from being completely unreasonable for nearly a decade to to now offering pretty solid returns going forward. So this is a good setup. You just have to be willing to take advantage of it.
2: All right. So, Kevin. Yes. You know, we've talked a little bit about this, but the fact that now there, there is an alternative to stocks, right? It was easier to make the case for the market in 2018 when everything else was at zero. Yes. And it was either do nothing or try for some return. Now you can get, as we've talked about a lot this week, you can get 4% in a savings account. You can get over 4% in a CD. You can get good returns on parts of fixed income. I mean, do you start to tilt that way or do you stick with equities?
6: It really depends on what the objectives are for each individual client, right? We know that trying to time the market is often an exercise in futility. In fact, going back over the last 25 years, Kelly, had you just missed out the 10 best days in the market, your returns would have been cut in half. Hmm. So there are ways to position your portfolio even for... The oncoming threat of recession, which I think is real in the first half of the year. One area that we really like is utilities. I know they're boring, but historically, they've been one of the best-performing sectors. during periods of economic slowdowns and recessions, and they also provide a good income as well.
2: They can have a challenged uh, time of it, though, with higher rates. And and that goes back to the discussion we were having in the A Block. You know, do have rates put in their highs or not? And maybe we can use the 10-year, for instance. Obviously, sure. they're going to keep hiking. But... Do you have to make that call in order to own utilities, for instance?
6: You do not. And I think it's fair to say that the worst is behind us right now with respect to rate hikes and with respect to inflation. Perhaps we get 75 basis points more of hikes in the first half of next year. And perhaps the economy dips into a recession. The economic outlook is not good. But if the worst is behind us with respect to inflation, with respect to rates, where do you position for growth? If it's going to be a choppy first half, Look to utilities that provide you with some income, that provide you with an opportunity for growth. Even if we're in a recession, Kelly, people still have to pay to keep their lights on. They still have to pay to heat their houses.
2: They're monopolies. It's a, it's a <laughs> a, Warren Buffett loves them. They're a great business <laughs> well, there's model. so much
11: downside protection.
2: Andy, what about you?
11: So in, in a similar vein to Kevin, I think there are some stocks that benefit from this kind of environment of high uncertainty. And it really what, what, in my view, is, is going to happen next year is cash flow will be king. Companies that are positioned to currently generate cash flow and that have the discipline to look through an economic cycle and grow that cash flow over time are ones that are more attractive. Um, some some of the businesses that fall into this category include healthcare, pharmaceuticals, and medical devices. These are companies that are not cyclical in the first place, but also do a really good job of generating cash flow, growing that cash flow, and growing their distributions over time, which investors may find attractive in a less certain environment.
2: Yeah, I see that Merck is one of the stocks. you like, why would you like ADP though? I mean, is it, wouldn't that be highly exposed to the labor market, for instance, if there's a slowdown?
11: So it, it would generally be exposed to the labor market. And I think the cycle that's coming our way, we're likely to enter a recession in 2023 in my view, but it's going to be an atypical recession. And one of the ways that it won't be like what we've experienced over the course of the past 20 to 30 years is employment is not likely to decline very far. Why? Well, lo- look at the statistics. There are still 1.6 job openings for every person looking for work. Um, a lot of employers, even though they're expecting a tough 2023, are hoarding labor. They're not letting people go, but perhaps they're finding other ways to try to cut their costs. Yeah. Um, and this suggests to me that, that ADP is actually in a pretty good environment. If people aren't cutting back payrolls, they're still going to need a vendor like ADP to support their human uh, human capital management.
2: We used to talk about the jobless recovery, Kevin, if yes. you remember those days. I'm trying to think this would be sort of the job a plenty recession or something. I mean, I,
6: This is true. And we
2: have talked about it, that, that companies are holding out before they have to cut a workforce that they spent years trying to assemble in the first place.
6: Yes, but even if you look at the Fed's projections for the end of next year, they anticipate unemployment going up to 4.6%. I think it's going to be closer to 5%. They also forecasted GDP growth for the entire year of next year at just one-half of 1% with most of that growth taking place in the second half of the year. So I think investors would be wise to position their portfolios for an economic recession during the first half of the year. But don't try and time the market knowing when to go to cash, when to be risk-on. Stay true to your risk tolerance. Stay true to your investment objectives. Stay true to your investment. Tolerance. So
2: then when you say you know, position for the recession in the first half, do you say come July 1, come hell or high water, you get into the stock market and you, you know, no matter what's happening, you just, you just go? Right?
6: I hate to say it depends, but it does depend. Yeah. <laughs> if the Fed stays too aggressive and they go beyond their suggested terminal rate of 5, 5.1%, then I think you could push this economy into an even deeper recession than would have otherwise occurred on its own.
2: Yeah, I know. There's still a lot we're going to find out. Uh, gentlemen, thank you. We'll leave it there. Kevin Mann, Andy Capri. Thanks, Kelly. Really appreciate it today. Coming up, shares of Dollar General are bucking the downtrend today. They have egan out a half a percent gain. We're going to get a look at their big bet on the more affluent consumer. That's next. There's a sneak peek right here on The Exchange. A rough week for the markets, but shares of Dollar General, they're faring pretty well, up about 3% as discounters are widely expected to weather a recession a little bit better. Dollar General is also so certain of that ability. It's launching a new store called Pop Shelf aimed at more affluent shoppers. The discounter aims to open 300 pop shelves next year despite the pullback that's expected
0: in consumer spending. CNBC's Melissa Repko got an inside look. Check it out. Dollar General is betting big on a new brick-and-mortar retail concept called Pop Shelf, where most shelves are stocked with items priced at $5 or less. The Pop Shelf store is really built around those discretionary categories, like celebration, like home, like seasonal. Contrast that with Dollar General, where most of our shoppers are coming into our stores really to fulfill their daily needs and more essential-type products. Emily Taylor, Dollar General's chief merchandising officer, says Popshelf is going after shoppers with an average household income of 50 dollars to $125,000, while the average household income for a Dollar General customer is $40,000 or less. Today, there are more than 100 Pop Shelf standalone stores across nine states mostly in the South. Like here in Hendersonville, Tennessee, a suburb of Nashville. We've announced that we'll get to 150 by the end of this year. We're gonna double our store count next year. Pop Shelf's plan? Unfolding in a challenging market where inflation is driving up prices. And competitors like Walmart and Target have noticed even wealthier shoppers becoming more price conscious and thinking twice about buying more than the necessities. This is part of a, a very big strategy for you. And the question is, can you afford for this not to work? We have a strong history of launching initiatives at Dollar General that really are rooted in a test and learn philosophy. And so as we continue to open stores, as we continue to go into new neighborhoods, we'll see what works. Sales at Dollar General rose in the third quarter as customers made more trips to its stores. But the retailers' profits were hit by supply chain troubles and softer sales of higher margin merchandise like apparel and seasonal decor. Its pop-shelf stores are designed to have higher sales and higher profits than its namesake stores. Each pop-shelf projected to hit $1.7 to $2 in sales annually, with an average gross margin rate that exceeds 40%. We're very pleased uh, with the results that we see today, and we'll continue to lean in on that and, and make sure that we're offering product that's relevant for the shopper. Melissa
2: joins me now on set. I I love it. Okay, sign me up, bring them to Jersey. Would it cannibalize
0: like a Target, a Walmart, you know, potentially? Definitely. It's really going after such an interesting cross-section because of its merchandise mix. So it has some pet supplies, for example. It has crafting supplies. It has plenty of things you might find in the front of Target or across Walmart stores. So it's really taking a piece of market share potentially from a lot of different retailers. And
2: did you glean anything from them on what they think is happening with their consumer or likely to happen with the economy next year?
0: So, Emily Taylor, who I interviewed in the video, talked a lot about how she thinks that the store can do well in any economy. She spoke about one of the inspirations behind the store is that shoppers want something without the guilt. They want an affordable treat. And she said that is even more relevant during a tough time where people may feel guilty getting a big ticket item, but may go to their store and kind of stumble across something like an inexpensive lip gloss or a toy for their child. And view that as a, a little indulgence. Totally. Do they have an e-commerce
2: aspect to this at all, or is this strictly brick and mortar?
0: It is online, but in a, a small way. They have a website and they have some curbside, well, they, they really have a almost a curbside pickup option where you can come and pick up your purchase from online. But it's a really minor part of what they do. A lot of their model is kind of similar to what TJ Maxx does in right. terms of the treasure hunts. You come and it's a different assortment every time. That's what it reminds me of. And uh, we've seen the success TJX has had. And this is a big bet for the company as well, like you mentioned. Um, Are they coming to New Jersey anytime soon? So they have very ambitious plans. After the 300 they'll get to next year, they're going to expand to 1,000. They haven't disclosed all those locations, but ultimately they see room for 3,000 stores. So it's a pretty safe bet that New Jersey will be on the map at some point. They're really starting close to their headquarters in Nashville. And a lot of the places they've gone to are, are fast-growing suburbs. So parts of Texas, parts of Florida. You know, All right. Yeah, yeah. We know. Jersey
2: doesn't make the cut for those places. We get it. Noah. it's a it's a big bet by them. It's a very intriguing time as well. It's great reporting, Melissa. Thank you very much. Thank you. Melissa Repko. For the full story, head over to CNBC.com. Still ahead, $2 billion. That's how much Disney's Avatar, The Way of Water, needs to make worldwide to break even. But with Disney shares on pace for their worst year since 1974, as the media industry reels from both customers and advertisers slowing, is that target feasible? Plus, which other companies than Disney are rooting for Avatar's success? Those answers, next. Streaming stocks are still struggling to find their footing amid increased competition. Netflix tumbled 8% yesterday on a report. The streaming giant is returning money to advertisers after missing viewership targets. The stock down more than 50% this year. Meanwhile, Disney down 42% year to date on track for its worst year since 1974. And their turnaround hopes ride in part on the release of their latest blockbuster, Avatar The Way of Water. But can Avatar deliver a $2 billion payout at the box office? Let's ask Sean McNulty. He's writer of entertainment and media business newsletter, The Wake Up at The Angler. Welcome, Sean. CNBC's Julia Borsten joins us as well. And, Julia, first of all, $2 billion, is that is that a break-even, some they need to reach? Well, maybe. That's the
10: number uh, that that the creator of all of this, James Cameron, said that the film would have to hit in order to break even. He was saying that the film would have to be the third or fourth highest-grossing movie of all time to break even. That's how expensive it is. So we'll see if that number actually ends up being true. A lot of that depends on how much money was spent on marketing. That's a quote that James Cameron gave to GQ. But the budget here is estimated around $250 million. There's no doubt that this movie has to perform well. But the key thing I'd say going into this week, Weekend, is Avatar is not the type of film that is likely to have a massive first week. And yes, it'll have a big one, but the real success from this
2: film will be how it performs between now and mid-February. And Sean, I mean, the box office looks pretty horrible this year. Can Avatar, how, how good can it do, do you think?
12: Uh, well, you know, Top Gun Maverick did 1.5 billion. Uh, the thing is, Black Panther 2 is tracking about mm, one third behind the original film, so... Two billion—it's steep, but you want to underestimate James Cameron, be my guest. And remember, this is on 3 D screens. The average ticket price for Avatar is about two dollars above a usual movie at the theaters. So, from a revenue point of view, you know it's not about of tickets; it's a matter of how much revenue per ticket you're getting, which is going to be inflated here, which could lift it above the Top Guns and other pictures that have come out this year.
2: Yeah, no, in, in and in a way I would love to see it do well because it feels like we're back to normal when people would go to the movies and it just feels all, all like part of the normalization of society. But there's something deeper going on here, Sean, for Disney, which is they've gotten a kind of increasing pushback about how much they paid for Fox and Avatar was a key part of that. So I don't know if you want to weigh in on that and kind of what's at stake here for Bob Iger in particular.
12: Yeah, I mean, the deal was, you know, we're going on almost five years now since they bought it for 71 billion. And, you know, what did you get? And there's, you know, uh, you had the India business, you have the star business, you have FX, you have The Simpsons, you have things that worth 71 billion dollars. That's the big question. Not that Avatar is going to solve that. And Avatar, you know, they've made two more films. So there's a lot more even running on this one. Forget the rest of Disney. They've invested a lot of money in this. And if this doesn't hit a certain metric. It doesn't look great for two and three, which are already shot. So this has a lot going on just on that sense. But, you know, Disney needs a, look, no question about it. They need money and streaming is not going to do it for them for quite some time. So this needs to turn a profit for them. Definitely.
2: And if it doesn't, Julia, or, or you know, wh- what other cards does Bob Iger have to play here? Oh, there's so many other cards to play here, but
10: I do think it's important to think about this as representing one of the key assets that Bob Iger acquired back the last time that he was running Disney. So they wanna make this work. And I think the performance of this film will not only impact the way they think about this Avatar franchise, but also the way they think about theatrical distribution. Right now, you have a whole industry that's trying to figure out how long you should put movies in theaters before they're available in streaming, whether you should be putting more content direct to streaming or whether you should be really protecting what they call call that theatrical window. So I think that's going to come into play here as well. And then remember, if you're looking just at Disney and Bob Iger, there are all these other questions like the health of the theme parks. Will we see the theme park business continue to be robust through the holiday season? So far, the trends seem positive. And then also things like challenges to the ad business. The advertising market overall has been contracting, has been challenged. How much does that impact the various Disney assets that are exposed to advertising?
2: Yeah. And he, you know, he, there's a lot of, of bigger currents here than just what Bob can do in the very, very short term. But Sean, as you look into 2023, what kind of year do you think it's going to be for all these streaming companies? Another year of cutthroat competition or, or does it change?
12: I would say there's not a lot of optimism in the stream business right now. Uh, look, the the Q4 you know earnings calls, which are going to come around in January, early February, are not going to be great. Disney's going to lose another billion dollars in streaming. I don't think at Peacock or Warner Brothers, none of this news is going to turn around at least until mid-year at best uh and if you want to predict the you know the economy at large at that point you know right. be my guess so uh no, I'd say not great you know uh the, the, everybody was projecting for 2024 the economy f- kind of fell out beneath them at that worst time so that they can't you know steer a ship or turn the ship that quickly so they're in for a couple of at least a couple of tough quarters if you're an optimist by summer this narrative will start to change and the looking ahead will be more bright, which is what Wall Street loves to hear.
2: So when you see, for instance, now Warner Brothers Discovery, you know, a billion dollars more in scrapped content charges, I mean, does that, is that a move in the right direction or is this just a sign of of how deep the problems run?
12: Uh, Look, they're nine months in, as uh, I'm sure David Zazov will remind you. Um, But even in the new numbers they released, they said this won't really churn through until the end of 2024. So they're saying two more years before this is all, done with and they you know reserved the right to say that number could of write offs could still go up so it's not looking great there they're going to that they're the company that has the most to turn around and you know uh, i think they were even probably a little surprised at what they found when yeah. they finally got the keys to the to the Quick last corner. word
10: Julia Well, look, I think the key thing to watch here is streaming, how that impacts the box office. During economic downturns, the box office tends to be very robust. This economic downturn may be different because of all the streaming options at home. Keep an eye on those ad-supported streaming. Players such as Netflix and now Disney, which just launched theirs. And also another term I'm going to throw out there, fast channels. These are free ad-supported channels. There's a lot of attention on the potential there to get people to watch and generate ad revenue without paying a subscription
2: fee. Fast channels. That, all right, that threw me for a fast one. Uh, Sean McNulty <laughs> and Julia Borston thank you both. We appreciate it as we watch the box office this weekend. Coming up, industrials are actually one of the better performers this week. Materials, one of the biggest laggards. We'll dig into the disconnect next. Welcome back. And one more thing before we go, everybody, check out the industrials. One of the worst performing sectors this week, falling on nearly 2%. Christina Partzinevelis is here with a
3: look at what's driving that action. Christina? Thank you, Kelly. So, industrials, like you said, are continuing to fall. And this is because investors are worried right now. Our company is going to postpone expansion, trim their production, and in turn demand fewer input resources. The sector right now is on pace for its second straight weekly loss. But if you zoom out... And you look at the XLI, which is tradable. That's how we can trade it for industrials. It's on pace for its first negative year since 2018. You can see year to date, it's down almost 8%. But today, let's talk about what's moving today. You're seeing some industrial and some material names lead the Dow. For example, Caterpillar is up just barely three-tenths of the percent. I had these guys in the green right before going live, but that changed. Boeing, though, is still negative on the year, but on the short term, it's outperforming other industrial players like Caterpillar as well as Honeywell on a month-to-date basis. And let's talk about one stellar performance, CF Industries. It's the best-performing S&P 500 materials name, and it's on pace for its fifth positive year in six. So the big pro- question now is what what's going to happen in 2023? Some analysts are divided. Morgan Stanley believes machine and construction offer a good entry point since margins are underperforming the market average. They increased their price targets on Caterpillar to 190, and they also increased their price target on Cummins, too. So these are the two names that you're seeing on your screen right here. And then on the flip side, you had Deutsche Bank that believes industrial names have yet to price in a recession and have not cut earnings enough. And so they're avoiding names like Illinois ToolsWorks and Terex, Kelly. Wow. And that
2: just highlights, again, the big uh, dispersion we're seeing between those who feel like we could hang in there, pick those kind of stocks, and then those who think the worst is yet to come. Christina, thank you. And thanks, everybody, for tuning in. That does it for The Exchange today. But ahead on Power Lunch, ready or not, three big names are about to report next week, and we'll get the trade on Nike, FedEx, and Micron. Power Lunch starts right now.